If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 John today. 1 John. Uh, so that's near the end um, uh, of your Bible, uh, far right. Uh, there's these, these letters uh, that were written by John and, and Peter. Um, and uh, man, they're great. So we're going to be in 1 John this morning. Um, 1 John 4. So we're in a series uh, finishing up Advent. If you don't know what Advent is, uh, I did not grow up observing Advent, um, uh, but it's a, something on the church calendar. Uh, what I mean by that is like churches all over the world at some point decided, um, or I guess maybe the tradition spread a long, long time ago of breaking up the year into different seasons, right? Which we do naturally anyway. And so the season of Advent was just set aside uh, for the rhythm of reflecting on Jesus' arrival, right, leading up to Christmas, a celebration of, of, of Christmas, uh, but also uh, focusing not just on his first arrival and anticipating that, but in anticipating his second arrival, right? That's what Advent means, coming or arrival. So we're looking forward to those two Advents. And we as Christians, it's so helpful to me because we live our entire lives between those two Advents, right? Our entire lives is between those things, looking back in celebration at what God has done and looking forward with great longing for what he will do. Right? That's what Advent is. It reminds us of that. And I think it just really helped shape me, especially in a season that feels so hectic and so chaotic, to be reminded uh, by some of the great themes of Advent. So one of the great themes of Advent is waiting or hope. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, uh, how uh, God talks often to his people about hope, about waiting, because the temptation is to look around when things get difficult and try to find solace in this world. And the Bible constantly says, no, 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 don't look, wait for what God has promised. Don't try to satisfy yourself because we are always looking to the wrong things to satisfy. Wait for God. So we are waiting with great hope for what God will do. And we're not trusting in ourselves to satisfy us, but waiting on God. And so we talked about that. And so how uh, it centers on Jesus, the hope that we have centers on Jesus and his arrival. Uh, we also talked about uh, another great theme of Advent is peace. Uh, I love, I, I'm not big on throwing around uh, words that I don't understand but, uh, from other languages, but uh, the Hebrew word, if we need to know two Hebrew words, we need amen, right? That's a Hebrew word. The other one is shalom, which is more than peace. It's this deep wholeness, this fulfillment, this satisfaction that goes beyond the lack of warfare, the lack of chaos, but includes being made whole and feeling complete. It's one of the great themes of the scriptures and the great themes of Advent is us focusing on that. Paul says it can be learned, it can be had, and that God himself will guard our hearts and our minds. If we listen to the reality, if we listen to the truth that we are sinners in need of salvation, then great peace and wholeness can come. It is central to Christianity. It's uh, more of a listening to the truth, confessing and repenting, and applying that truth in our lives. And then joy. Uh, joy. It's, Christianity is uniquely centered on joy. We talked about that last week, uh, that it's just amazing that God is not only concerned about our behavior, but he's concerned about our joy, right? He's, he's concerned about our joy. And I think that I so often reduce my relationship with God to how I act. And he is deeply concerned with joy of the people, uh, of, his, of his children. It's uniquely uh, central in Christianity. Um, it's more of a state of a being, right? We long for this future joy, right? Joy will come in the morning, right? Um, but also a present joy, uh, joy, joy comes even in the morning, even in the sadness and even in the 
hard times because the joy is so great that when we stack up our struggles and we stack up our sufferings up against the cross, the joy overwhelms it. It's not that the struggles go away. It's just that the joy overwhelms the pain. And so joy. And so this morning we're going to actually talk about uh, one of the other great loves. Uh, one, sorry, one of the other great themes of Advent, which is love. First uh, John, this guy named John who traveled around with Jesus, knew Jesus. In this letter, he writes this about Jesus. This is, uh, I'm going to start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. So John says to these people that he's writing to, hey, beloved, people that I love, let's love each other. Beloved, let us love one another for, here's why that we should love each other, for love is from God. So the love that we have is is a gift from God. It comes to us from God. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you are loving, you know God and you're born, born of God. So anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among, was made manifest among us. So in this, so, so in this thing that I've been talking about, in this love, God's love was made manifest. It was revealed. We, we, we saw it. We, what is God's love like? We saw it. It was made manifest. It was made clear among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God. I'm not talking about the fact that we love God when I talk about love. In this, not that we've loved God, but he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Maybe my favorite $10 word. I know it's a propitiation. You don't use it in normal conversations, but it's my, it might be my favorite. Here, here, all it means is one that stands in the place of another, right? He was our propitiation. He took the place of us. He sent him to do what? To be the propitiation, the thing, the one, the price, the, the one that stands in the place. So in the Old Testament, you, you've seen the, the images, if you read about how they would have to come and offer sacrifices. It wasn't just Israelites, everybody did. In the, in the Old Testament, it was very much this animal stood in the place of you. You'd come into the tabernacle of the temple and the first thing that you would see is that altar. God's back there in the Holy of Holies and you can't come any close. And just the whole picture, the way it was set up was if you want access to God, you better have brought a sacrifice, something to stand in the place for what you've done. How do we know that God loves us? It was made clear among us. How? He sent his only son into us. We can see it clearly. Why? Because he came. Not only did he come to earth, but he stood in the place of us. This is the propitiation. $10 word. I've lost my place. Oh, here you go. Propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, and he did, we also ought to love one another. So his reasoning is, God loved us this way. That's why we ought to love each other, beloved. People that I love, love each other. Why? Because God has loved us. How did he love us? He sent his son to die in our place. So that's why we love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We haven't seen God, but if you want to see what God is like, it's going to be seen in how we love each other. If the world wants to see what it's like, what it's, how God loved us, it's in how we love one another. When we love one another like this, God dwells in among us. Not only does he dwell among us and we can see what he's like, his love is perfected in us. So not only can you see what it's like, but it changes us. It transforms us. When we love each other, 
how do we know what God is like now? Not because we can see Jesus. We can't even see God. Jesus is a sinner. We wait for him to come back. But now while we wait, it's while we, beloved, in the church, the way that we love one another, that's how we see God's love. Not only that, when we do it, we're altered. By this we know, by the, we got a long way to go, by the way, just keep it fine. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So if you testify who Jesus is, that he is God's son sent, if that's what you believe, if that's how you live, if that's what you've given your life to, then you can know that God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's a day coming when we will give an account for the lives that we've lived. And if you are like me, that terrifies you. But because we've seen God's love who stood in our place, we can now live not in fear of that day, but with great confidence, not because of who we are, but because of the propitiation we have in Jesus. Lost my place again. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is also, um, verse 18, there is no, uh, yeah, there's no fear in love, but lo- uh, perfect fear, love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? God is love. Those three words just, you know, I, I, you, you, I learned them when I was really young. And there was huge transformation in my life when I actually began to wrestle with that idea. That God is love. Not God is loving, Right? That God is love. Like what a powerful, beautiful, amazing idea that God is love. But what about the other things? You know what I mean? Like there's other things, right? This is me, probably me. God is love, but what about the other things? You know what I mean? I mean, what about when God is the lawgiver? 
He gives rules, right? And he seems to take them really seriously. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, in Deuteronomy, he's talking about his laws, and he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be, you in, uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Your kneading bowl? Your bowls will be cursed? Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. It goes on. If we don't follow his rules, uh, Leviticus 26 says this, if you do not listen to me and you do not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if, you, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I'll do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seeds in vain. Your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you, and, I shall be, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursue you. And in spite of this, you will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sin, and I will break the pride and power, and will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. He's a rule giver. He's a law giver, and he takes his rules seriously. Like God is love, but also this. What do I do with this? Not only that, sometimes it talks about, the Bible talks about God's wrath, about him being angry and pouring out his wrath. Uh, Just one among many examples, Isaiah 13 talks about this. He says, the Lord of the host is mustering a host for battle. Verse six, wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty, it will come. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. God is love. What about this? We should kind of like have some kind of a balance, right? Like maybe he's loved sometimes, maybe he's wrathful sometimes, you know? Don't do that. That's bad. That's bad. That's not good. Some people were like, yeah, that's Old Testament God. New Testament God's different. Yeah, that doesn't pan out if you read the whole thing through. Like it's, nah. Pretty consistent beginning to end, you know? So here, here, here's what I believe. I believe that where you start trying to understand this matters. Here's what I mean. If you are like me, and you start with God is wrath, that's your primary understanding of what God is like. And you go, okay, God is wrath, and then I'm going to live my life like that. Then, then, then what I end up doing is just trying to avoid God, right? I try to avoid him, and just, I'm just doing things to appease this God to keep him away from me and to hold him at distance. If I start with God is, it, God is wrath, I'm never ever going to be able to understand that he's love. If I start with God is most concerned about his rules, if I start with God is a law giver, and I start there, then it's become, then, then what happens is is I end up with an understanding of God that God loves me when I keep his rules and he doesn't love me when I'm not keeping his rules. 
If I start there, if I start with God as a lawgiver and I try to understand his love after that, I'm only going to see that he loves me. I'll constantly be earning. I'll constantly be trying. And the second that I I am not able to keep his laws and keep his rules. And once I realize that and I get so exhausted, I'm going to end up running from God. I'm not going to see his love. If I start, though, if I start with what John says, God is love. And then I try to understand the other things. It starts to, it starts to come together pretty good. If I start with God is love, then his wrath makes sense. God's wrath is a response to his love. Those who do great damage to the ones that he loves, he will stop. Because he loves. If you've ever loved someone who struggles with like repeated behaviors that cause great pain in their own life, right? A person who keeps dating the same person over and over again, you just want to strangle them, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, dude, you're dating the same person again. Have you lost your mind? How do you not see this the same person? It's different this time. Okay, whatever. You get mad at them. Why? Because you want them to stop this thing that's just causing pain in their life. You've known somebody who struggled with addiction. You get so angry with them sometimes. Why? Because you love them so much. God's wrath. And if you love someone and you see someone else hurting them, you're your anger will overflow at the one who is harming your beloved. If you start with God's love, his wrath makes sense. Uh, I believe it was Edwards, but he points out that it says in, in, in the prophets that his wrath is his strange work. He says he desires no one to, str- no one to suffer, no one. He, doesn't, he said, I can take no pleasure in seeing the wicked perish, but I want all to repent. His wrath makes sense when you understand God is love. And his rules begin to make sense too, right? His rules begin to make sense if you understand that he is protecting his beloved. The reason he gives us rules is not because you have to earn, it's to protect and guard the one that he loves. If I start with the rules, I'll never end up in a relationship with God. If I start with his love, I will see his rules differently. As his great care for me. We have to understand love rightly, right? That's what John is saying. We have to understand what God, we understand what God's love is. How? By looking at Jesus and what he did. What's God's love like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what his love is like? Look at Jesus. How he loves is how he loves is with great freedom. This guy named uh, Rowan Williams wrote some of this stuff that I'm just really impacted me. And he, he's borrowing from a dude named Carl Bart. Don't worry about any of that. I just want you to know that it's not me. Um, wrote about God's freedom, and he says this. This is Rowan writing about it. Rowan Williams. When Jesus abused, he didn't retaliate. They, in, they hurled their insults at him. He didn't retaliate. Here is divine love that cannot be defeated by violence. We do our worst and still fail to put God off. We reject, exclude, and murder the one who bears the love of God in his words and his works. And that love continues to do exactly what it always did. 
Jesus dying on the cross is completely consistent with Jesus. We've followed through his entire ministry. Can't deflect the love that comes through in life and in death. So when Pilate and the high priest acting on behalf of all of us, it seems, push God in Jesus to the edge, God in Jesus gently but firmly pushes back, doing exactly what he has always done, loving and forgiving and healing. The God's, and this God whose actions and whose reactions to us cannot be dictated by what we do. You can't trap, trick, or force God into behaving against his character. You can do what you like, but God is God, and if he wants to love and forgive, then he's going to love and forgive whether you like it or not, because he's free. God's love for us is so great, no matter what you do, if he wants to love you, he's just gonna go ahead and do it anyway. You can run from him, you can be mad at him, you can scream at him, you can kill him, and he will do what God does, love anyway. That's how free he is. I'm not that way. Not yet, yeah? You can push me far enough, and it gets hard to love you. You know what I mean? Like, there's a time you just you keep pushing and keep pushing, and people can push you further and further and further. At some level, like, we want to say that we're just loving people, but at some level, we, we, we relationships uh, become too hard, they become transactional, it becomes difficult because I'm not that free. In some way, you can dictate the level of my love and I can dictate the level of yours by how we treat one another. God's not like that, he's freer. Push as hard as you want and you can't make him stop loving you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's so out of balance. Uh, I don't know, maybe this probably, probably happened to you, maybe not, maybe it was just me, but do you remember like uh, your, first, uh, your first relationship, right? Maybe like your first person you dated, right? Uh, if, you ever, if you started dating them somewhere like October, you have a problem on your hands, right? Because Christmas is coming, and this is a trap, it's a trap, it's a trap. Like, I don't know where we are in this relationship, but it's got to be even. Like, I can't get you nothing and you give me something. If I get you something too nice, then it's over. You know what? Let's just break up. I can't deal with this chaos. That's how we are. We, we need it to be somehow equal in relationship, right? Like, we need it to be... So, and God's not like that. No matter what we do, no matter how little we do, no matter how hard we push, no matter how we run, because he is God at his center, his love will pursue us. He's free, and he has chosen in his freedom to do this unbelievable thing, to bind up his future and his great joy with us. That he says, I will not be without you. My future will involve you no matter what you do. Can you imagine that? To bind your happiness. The closest I can think of is this. The closest example that I can think of is, is, is kids. When you have kids, like there's something where you're like, I heard it, I've heard it said before, people tell you this when you have a, have a kid, they're like, well, you're only gonna be as happy as your least happy child. Because your love and your joy is so bound up with theirs. And God has chosen to do that for us in his great freedom. What is love like? It's like this.
There's this moment when Jesus is headed to the cross, uh, Matthew 23, and he's headed to the cross and he stops um, and he just, just this cry comes out of him and he prays over the city, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He wants to forgive and call us in no matter what we do. And here's an interesting thing. Not only is this true, it's how God acts. It's how he is transforming the world. I mean, Christmas is this stunning thing that God comes into the world as this child. The promised seed of Genesis 3 that will defeat the evil one It happens when God himself becomes the seed and is born into this world as a child and yet a king. And he is in the shadow of all of this power of the Roman Empire, and yet he's promised this transformation and this world-altering thing, and the way he goes about it is so confusing that those closest to him are constantly saying, you've got to stop talking like this. They're begging him, what are you saying you have to go and die? What are you saying you have to do this and that? I don't understand. And so he's It's so confusing to them because what he's doing is so different. He's not acting like the normal kings who take and control things by power, but instead he's changing the world through love. He goes and he dies to transform the world, to draw the world to him. His power is unbelievable. It's how he's changing our hearts. Um, we want to change with force and with consequence. Um, and that's not how he does it. Uh, if we think of God's rule as a rule giver first, and he does give rules. Yeah. Instead of as someone who loves us, then our, we're going to live wrong. It's almost as if why we do something matters. Does that make sense? Here's what I mean. Um, If you're constantly living afraid of punishment, if you're constantly living fearful that you're going to get caught, that God is going to see what you do, if you're constantly living that way, isn't that selfish? It's a selfish way to live and understand God's love. If we live constantly uh, just trying not to screw up, um, I mean, that's not what the God of the Bible is like. And we've misunderstood and we're living by the wrong faith. The proper fear of God, yes, is healthy. There's a healthy fear of God, right? Like, like the, the fear I had of my father. My father um, was a kind, very, very kind man, but uh, if he raised his voice, he could strike fear into your heart. But you knew that he loved you. So that kind of fear, yes, but the kind of fear that drives out, the kind of love that drives out fear is the kind of fear that we just are constantly worried that if we get caught or if we do something wrong that God's going to get us, and that's not what it is. The motivation of our obedience matters. Yes, there are things that God calls us to do, but why do we do them? It means that you could obey and not be living by faith. You could do the thing that God tells you to do and not do it out of faith. You just do it to not get caught. Not to do it out of faith that this God loves you. 
the reality is, is that what you love and what you fear are the primary things, maybe the exclusive things, that lead you on a daily basis. The reason that you do things every single day are because of what you love or what you fear. That's how you live. Um, that's what we do here, by the way. BCC kids down here, if you work with BCC kids and the people working at BCC kids, what they are doing is they are teaching these kids to love the right thing. So we do. We, we want, think about it this way, like, um, I mean, you got kids, you got rules, right? I mean, when they're babies, have you ever seen like a, a baby like giraffe or something? Like, you've been watching the Nature Channel, like a baby giraffe's born, like the baby horse? It's like an hour later, and that thing's just off on its own. Like for a year, you just got to hover over this thing 24-7, like a baby human. Like they're just like, not only that, they get a little bit older and they just like constantly try to kill themselves. It's amazing. You could set them on a table and just walk away and within seconds, they're just going to head dive right off of it. It's unbelievable. Like you just have to watch them 24-7 and, and then they get older and older and older and you have to begin to give them rules, right? Because they're just going to do stupid, they'll just go play in the street. You have to say don't play in the street. You know why? Because they will. They'll just go play in the street. You, you shouldn't have to tell somebody that. They should be able to figure that out. But you have to tell, so you set barriers and you set rules. And as they get older, you have to set more and more rules. But here's the problem. If you only parent by rules, when they leave your house, the second they leave your house, they will do whatever they want. You know how I know? I did. The second, I, the second I, was in, I was out of my parents' house and realized, wait a second, nobody asked me where I was, where I was going, what I did while I was there. I was not ready for that level of freedom. If we only parent by rules, and we have to have rules because of how they are, but if you only parent by rules, then they're gone, they're going to make their own decisions. What we really want to do as, as, as a church and as parents is we want to teach these kids and each other to love the right thing. We want our hearts shaped to love the right thing. We want to teach them when they leave here to love Jesus above all things. So when they leave here and we can't see them, they're still loving Jesus. We've taught them to love the right thing. They love the church. They love each other. They know what their hope lies in. Because once they do that, everything else in their heart will fall in the right place. If we teach them to love Jesus first, if we shepherd their hearts to love the right things, when hard decisions come, what they love will guide them. So we are seeking to make disciples of Jesus by teaching them to love the right things. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we talk about the things that we talk about. To teach them to love the right things because we can't stand there with them forever giving them rules. We want their hearts to be shaped that when they stumble and they fall, they run to this Jesus who loves them and forgives them and longs to be their God. That's what we're trying to do is to shape their hearts to know what it is. And so what do we love? What do we teach them to love? We teach them to love this God who has loved them this way because nothing else will love them this way. Nothing else in this world that we give ourselves to will love them this way. We teach them to love a God, a thing, a person, a being who loves them in a way that transforms them and guides them and leads them. And we teach them to love something that drives out fear. Boltman, this is a dude named Boltman. I don't know anything else about him but this. Well, I've read some of the stuff. But Boltman says this amazing thing. He has this great quote. He says, anxiety is anticipated terror. Hope is anticipated joy. Right? I mean, like when he said it, and I was like, duh, yeah. How did I, yeah. 
anxiety is my constant fear that something's going to go wrong and that I am not going to be enough. Right? Something's going to be taken from me. Hope is anticipated joy. That's why John says love, real love, true love, drives out fear. Because for the Christian, no matter what happens in this life, your ultimate anticipation is joy. And that love of God drives out that fear. Let me give you an example. We're fine. Give you an example. So, um, I love my son. He's great. I love him. Uh, but I really struggle with, I really struggled with, I'm better about it now. I really struggled with because I loved him so much that, uh, like, it, it, I, I just, I was just constantly afraid. Like, Wendy's from Mississippi, so it's just different. Like, she's like, no, like, here's a bow and arrow and a gun and a sharp knife and a motorcycle. You know, we go. She's fine. Be fine. I'm like, wait, we don't, we don't live like that here. So like, I'm just like hovering constantly, right? There's a constant fear of like the anxiety. Uh, something's going to happen to him. And, and what is that? That is my constant concern. That is my constant anticipation of terror. What happens if something happens to him? That's why I live in anxiety constantly. Love comes in. Love like this, love like this comes in and it drives out fear. And here's how it drives out fear. It says, no matter what happens to him, he is mine and I love him and I love you. No matter what happens, you can't really control and protect his whole life. You have to give him to me. I'm not saying do whatever. I'm not saying you just hand him fireworks like my wife does. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you have to like... You, yes, you set up rules, and yes, you love them well, but if you live in constant anxiety, I'm going to eventually break him because all of my hope is resting on him. If, however, if, get this, if my great love is this Jesus who loves me and my anticipation is this hope, my hope is this anticipation of the great joy for him and for me that we have in Jesus Christ and that nothing in this world, not even death itself, can take it away from him, if that is my great hope, somehow this anxiety is transformed and my relationship grows and somehow my Jesus and his love of me and my love of him is so sweet that it actually makes my love of my son even sweeter than it could have ever been on its own. It puts in its right place. It doesn't rest everything on my marriage or on him or this church. It rests on Jesus. And no matter what happens, my great hope is, the, is that I have anticipated joy in Jesus. And how do we get there? Love drives out fear. Love drives out fear. I find this kind of love drives out fear. That's why we're just constantly going on and on about the cross. <laughs> this is who you are. Your sins cost that. Also, at your worst, that's how, love, how loved you are. Every single week, this is how loved you are. The reality. You see his love and you find out what you love and let him correct you and guide you. When we learn that he loves us, his obedience to him becomes our great joy. Why? Because we look at our situation and go, I don't want to do that. And he says, do that anyway. And we go, you know what? You have loved me so well. It is my great joy to trust you in this obedience. It's very different than if I don't do this, God's going to get me. One of them is faith. One of them is not. This is who he is and what he is like. Last thing. It's beautiful. 
and it's rich and it's deep, but also loving like this hurts. It's vulnerable. God loves like this and the cross happens, right? What do you think is going to happen for us? <laughs> you know, same thing. Uh, you guys are lucky. C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book called The Four Loves and you're just, you should be lucky I just didn't stand here and read that to you. But here's a quote. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It'll not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers and uh, all the dangers of love is hell. Locking our hearts away, afraid to love. We love like Jesus. Listen, this is how Jesus is changing the world, and it's how he's changing us. And and here's the thing. If it sounds impossible to you, it it is to love this way. But he's changing us this way. What we're saying is, we know, love one another as you want to be loved, right? Treat each other as you want to be treated, right? So what he's saying is you love this way, this, with this freedom and this gushing. You go out in the world and you love in your relationships. You love people who don't deserve it and who push back. And it's going to be so hard. It's going to be so hard. But the alternative is locking my heart away and not loving at all. So we go and we love like this in the world. And what happens is two things. God changes the world this way. It's this kind of love that he uses to transform all of creation. Doing it even now. And two, here's what happens. I mean, don't you want to be loved that way? Chris, are you telling me, this week, um, me and a buddy of mine, we work out together, and uh, we both been like working towards this goal, this one goal. This week he hit it. I did not. And my immediate reaction was, this is the worst day of my entire life. <laughs> yeah, right? No, I was happy for him that he hit it, but I was just like, oh, like, I've been up for like nights thinking about it. Like, how do like, I got to get there? Like, how do I get there? Like, what do I do? Maybe I can take, I don't know. Like, I got to get 14 trainers. I don't know. Like, I just got to get there because he did it and I didn't do it. But it's, what I said out loud was, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. To love someone like you want to be loved means that you're as happy for them and their success as you would have been if you did it. To love your neighbor as yourself is to be as happy for them when something good happens as you would be if it happened to you. That kind of love changes the world, but it also changes you. Don't you want to be the type of person who has that kind of expanded capacity to love? Don't you want to be that kind of person that loves this freely in the world? Your alternative is to lock your heart away. It's vulnerable, but it's powerful. This is what we're called to. This is what we celebrate. This kind of transformative love. A God who operates in your life, in this church, in this world, transforming things through love. God is love. He loves you. And he desires to make you more and more like him to transform his entire creation. Let's pray. Father, this is the light. 
This is the good news. It doesn't make any sense to me that I should be as happy for others, that you would love that way. But God, expand me. Expand my capacity to love. To love like you. To have the kind of freedom to love that I can't even dream of. And Father, I have pushed you away. I have ignored your laws and rules. I have sought my own way. I have ended up in darkness time and time again. And no matter what I do, I cannot change you because you are God and your love and your forgiveness are insistent and immovable. May that love break our hearts. May that love expand our capacity to love. May we know you more deeply. May we worship you more and more and more. May we be transformed by this great reality that you love so deeply, that you pursue so consistently. Transform us. May we be the forces of love in the world like that. As we celebrate the arrival of this world, of this love into the world in a way that is manifest, that we can see it. May we just be in awe. Draw us to you. Drive out fear. Hmm. Christ's name we pray. Amen.